0: corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon.
1: Yeah, so appreciate again those that are here. I will have this available on all your favorite podcast platforms. I just got an email I tweeted out showing that I've now published my 200th episode of Lead Lag Live, so uh, continue to build out that. Library of Conversations. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of The Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the air is Cam Hui, who as some of you may have seen over the years, uh, used to be one of Seeking Alpha's top writers, uh, very thoughtful in the way that he looks at markets. Cam, first time you and I speak formally. Introduce yourself here to the audience. Who are you? How'd you get interested in markets? And how do you typically look at portfolio management, especially in years like this year?
2: Michael, thank you for having me on your your podcast. I I like to spend a little bit of time talking about my process and my investment journey and finish with some views on the market. I've been involved in the market since 1980 and professionally since 1985. I spent half my professional life as a brokerage firm analyst and the other half as a portfolio manager running U.S., international, emerging market equities, as well as kind of hedge fund, long, short portfolios. And thinking about my journey, I started actually with my training was in computer science. And I first trained as a quant, a quantitative analyst, though I always was interested in technical analysis. In fact, my last job was at the U.S., technical analysis group at Merrill Lynch with Marianne Bartels and we were ranked by institutional investors i am grateful to be be able to continue a long tradition of technical analysis dating from the days of Bob Farrell also i would say i would throughout my professional journey i was fortunate to be in organizations with very horizontal reporting structures and you know if Young people come to me, and I always for for career advice. I always say to them, try to get into a, an organization with a flat reporting structure, and that way you, you can get to learn all sorts of uh, bits of the business. And what I did learn is not only the investment business, but the business of managing money. So I talk a little bit about my investment thinking and. The, the business thinking behind asset management, because at the end of the day, the asset managed business is sub- subject to competitive pressures, and the sources of alpha evolves. I mean for example, the the Ben Graham techniques that we hear about really don't work very well anymore. For example, he talks about finding companies that are worth worth more dead than alive. The companies whose working capital net net working capital is, is less than the price of the shares—that is to say, their current—you take their current assets minus all liabilities—and see if that's worth more than the the price of the shares. That's assuming that you're valuing all long-term assets at zero. With all the all the computing power that's out there these days. You just don't find those kinds of companies anymore. And if you do, they're tiny, tiny, tiny micro caps that you really can't trade. So let's talk a little bit about how investment thinking has evolved over the years. I'll start with back in the 1960s with the efficient market hypothesis. And what the efficient market says is, you know, everything that's publicly known about a stock is already out there. So if that's the case, you can't beat the market with a stock picking in that case, you might as well index. And that, that was a obviously a very controversial school of thought at the time. And over the, over the years, there were really two branches of pushback against that idea. The first came in the 1970s with what I'll call anomalies literature. And a bunch of academics started thinking, well, in theory, you can't beat the markets, but if you fix the stocks that have low PEs or low price to book or high dividend yield or small cap, you can beat the market. And those are what we traditionally think of these days as value factors. Value factors work very well back in the 70s, and then they stopped working, and the, the these days, we go through value growth cycles, and that's what I mean by saying that alpha kind of goes away and gets arbitraged away. The other way of pushing back against efficient market hypothesis is portfolio. some of the ideas behind portfolio construction. Now, on the internet and in spaces like this and discussion groups like this, we love to talk about what to buy and what to sell. We don't talk enough. When you're managing your portfolio of how much to buy and sell, and that's just as important. Yes, we talk about position sizing and, and trading, but that's only part of it. I'll talk about an idea called the CapM or the capital asset pricing model. And what CapM says is, okay, maybe you can't beat the market, but there's this neat dial on your portfolio called portfolio beta. Maybe you can't beat the market, but you can time the market. So if you like, if you like the stocks and you think stocks are going up, you dial up the beta. You make, make it, you buy, buy stocks that are more sensitive to, to market moves. You dial up the beta. If you think that the market is going down or you don't like the market, you dial down the beta and you have this magic dial that goes up and down. And that worked for a while. In, in terms of academic thinking. And then a bunch of people said, well, wait a minute, that's that's ridiculous. I can form two separate portfolios. One, let's say I create a portfolio of well-diversified oil stocks, and I create a different portfolio of well-diversified portfolio of airline stocks. And you know that if you get an oil shock, these two portfolios are going to to." Behave very, very differently, which is totally contrary to the theory that's in CAPM, and that created a revolution in thinking about portfolio construction and how you to manage risk. No longer do we think about just market or beta, but factor beta. So, the way you, you construct a, a risk risk framework is. Typically, you you create industry groupings and you create factor groupings like value, growth, momentum, and so on. So with that framework in mind, let me talk about a little bit about how I used to manage quantitative portfolios.
1: Can before before we do that, because there's a lot that sure. I mentioned, which I think is, is worth touching on. I'm, I'm just curious, because so you, sure. you, mentioned, you mentioned Bob Ferrell's, so and I've mentioned this in prior spaces. So I didn't know that you had been at Merrill during that period, but my father was on the same team as Bob Farrell's with a gentleman named Steve Shobin. And you know, back then, Bob Farrell was kind of revered as this you know, guru technician, obviously, as you know, came up with the 10 rules, right, as it relates to markets. I'm curious if over time, in your view, Farrell's way of looking at markets has would have changed. In other words, how consistent are some of these maxims that he would be known for to How put are they to today's market environment?
2: I would say that Ferrell's 10 rules are, are still valid today. You know, technical analysis is, well, let me put it this way. People who generally do technical analysis are generally self-taught. You know, you don't go and get an MBA and specialize in technical analysis. That's how. That's not how you get trained. You're self-taught. but. From a finance theory point of view, technical analysis is the study of human behavior, and with finance theory, is actually a form of what they call behavioral finance. And it's a, like a very valid school, it's just being able to to phrase it differently, and and, and technical. That's why technical analysis works. It's behavioral finance. When I call, when I put on my academics hat, does that answer your question?
1: Yeah, no. It's just it's always amazing to me how some of these things really don't change in terms of behavior, which is a lot of what his rules largely covered, right? When when the crowd thinks one way, it's going to be something else, right? Which is basically contrarianism, and you can you can model some of that behavior quantitatively, but some of it is more you can argue intuition, which I think lends itself maybe to where you want to go in the conversation, which is how much of the investment process is art versus science, right? Meaning how much is it qualitative versus quantitative in your view for, for longer term success?
2: When I started in this business as a quant, I thought gee, quant investing is great because it's so unemotional and and you, you know, you built this, uh, this box and, and you, you put some stuff into it, but you know, At the end of the day, it's like telling a computer what to do. Computers are dumb, and it'll do exactly what you tell it to do. And if you if you don't have the right kind of thinking behind how you model, it's going to lead you off a cliff. So so yes, you got to be yes, you have to be disciplined. But you have to be disciplined in a in a creative way. You have to have market sense, and actually. When we recruit people for, for quantitative positions, it's very difficult to find somebody with market sense. You can find lots of people with the technical skills of building models. It takes a lot of time to find someone with that kind of market sense.
1: Yeah, and and I agree. And, and obviously, if you're going to model, you've got to have some some understanding of markets in general. But you and I both know that nothing is foolproof, and Models like everything else will do better in some cycles and worse than others. And I've always used that line on Twitter there are no gurus, there are only cycles. I can make the same argument around an ideal model portfolio. There's no such thing as an ideal model portfolio. It's just a cycle that that portfolio operates in that makes it look ideal for a moment in time. Talk through to the audience backtesting for a moment because part of developing a model, obviously, is seeing if not only that there's correlation, but also the causation, which is a bit more qualitative than quantitative.
2: Yes, absolutely. When you're doing backtesting, that's one risk of backtest. You create a technique that looks great in backtest, and then when you turn it on, it blows up on you right away. So, what you need to have when you create a model before you backtest is some intuitive sense of why it works. I'll give you an example. All right. I was working at a, at a hedge fund. It was a CTA, a commodity trading advisor. And if you know CTA models, they're trend following models. And without going into great deal of detail about the proprietary needs, the trend following models are fairly simple. They, you apply two or three moving averages. When they cross, you get a signal, you buy or you sell. And For the longest time, I couldn't figure out why it worked. I kept asking people, like, you know, why does it work? Why does it work? Now, at the time, I was running an equity market neutral quantitative model. So what I did was separate from these trend-falling guys. But I did notice that at the end of the day, sometimes they go home totally white-knuckled. And that's because these trend-falling models put them into some big macro bet. It was all aligned. Interest rates, the dollar, commodity, you know, commodity prices. And let's say non-farm payroll comes out tomorrow and goes the wrong way, you blow up or you make a lot of money. Or and what I realized is that these trend following models, what they're really doing, is they're spotting long dated macro trends. And what I mean as an example is Let's say the Fed is raising interest rates as they are. Well, we know at the next meeting, the decision isn't 50-50 up or down. It's going to be have an upward bias. Well, that's a trend. And if you can spot the trend and you can overlay the right kind of risk control on it, you can make decent money. And that's what trend-falling models are doing. And in fact, that's what I do. When I do my top-down macro analysis, I use trend falling techniques to spot macro trends. You know, I split the world into three trade blocks, the U.S., Europe, and Asia, which is mostly centered around China. It used to be Japan, it's now China. And I watch the equity markets in, in each of those markets and commodity prices and watch whether they're trending up or they're trending down. If you're, if you're trending up, you've got a risk on uh, uh, signal. You know, you, they're, they're all trending down. You've got a risk off signal. And from that, I create a model. Does that answer your question?
1: Yeah, no, it's an important point to Just on as a side note, I've made that argument before that, because you, since you mentioned moving averages, I, I've argued, which sounds like a strange argument, that, moving averages are not necessarily so much about trend, but rather volatility, right? So usually when you are, doesn't matter what asset class you're in, usually when you're above a moving average, there's more underreaction, more consecutive up days in a row, lower volatility. Whereas when you're below moving average, you know, there's more big up, big down, higher volatility, more seesaws. And that's a phenomenon that exists across stocks, bonds, commodities, you know, from my own testing. So a lot of my framework, Myself, when it comes to backtesting, is ultimately around volatility dynamics changing for an asset class, and then what benefits or gets hurt from that volatility dynamic changing. If that makes sense,
2: I agree absolutely, and uh, I know that experienced hedge fund allocators look at trend following is as a volatility bet. I agree, right? Exactly, but right. But, but also they do spot trends, and from from. If you map, map it into a macro space, you can spot reflation trends and deflation trends. And from that, you can do, develop a composite signal. And in fact, when I, I've got a, a real live track record of my composite signals since 2013. I don't have a, an actual portfolio because I don't run money. But if I apply th- those signals to a really simple 60-40 benchmark, kind of portfolio, you start at 60-40 benchmark. If you have your risk on, you go go to 80-20. That's 80% stocks, 20% bonds. You have your risk off, you go the other way, 40% stocks, 60% bonds. It's beaten the benchmark in all periods, one, three, five years and since inception. And in fact, this model portfolio winds up with equity like returns with 60-40 balance like risk now i understand that 60-40 acted terrible this year and i've seen the sorts of things you've said about bonds and 60-40 and i understand those kinds of problems but nevertheless this kind of model has performed quite well despite those kinds of challenges
1: yeah and and it's interesting right because you're hitting on something which i've Often referenced to, which is that especially on FinTwit, people focus on the idea of beating, in quotes, the market, which I never quite understood why there's such an obsession over that, but beating the market with individual stocks. But I've often found, consistent with research, that if you want to beat the average, you have to choose the right average, which is really just a way of saying, you know, asset class decision matters more than the individual constituents of the asset class. Now, the dilemma, as you know, which you kind of alluded to this year, is that. This is the first time ever in history where not just bonds, but treasuries in particular, right, have have acted worse than equities in a high volatility sequence. So it is one of those, I'd argue, anomalous periods from a modeling perspective. But you and I also both know that every every model, every strategy, every data set will have periods where something you've never seen before happens. That doesn't necessarily invalidate what the model is 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 putting out there.
2: Absolutely. Shall we talk markets? Markets? Yeah, or, let's talk, let's let's talk markets? Yeah, let's talk about markets, because
1: you, 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 you mentioned some of these sort of trend-falling dynamics and some of these... So
2: uh, let me tell you what, what I think is going on today. Let's start with something that's very obvious, is we're in a global tightening cycle. You know, everybody knows that. And when I look at the three trade blocks, Europe is uh, ob- is certainly in recession. China is probably in recession, and the U.S. is looks like it's going to enter recession 2013 we have the two's 10 yield curve invert and the 10 year and the 3 month just inverted and that is certainly a recession signal but markets are always lo- lo- looking forward looking and i am starting to see some green shoots and signs of healing from the, some of the uh, from the equity market and that, let me t- tell you what I, what I mean by that. Let's talk about the different trade blocks, starting with Europe. Europe, uh, I used, used to think about Europe as sort of a first-in, first-out principle. They're the first into recession. They're probably going to be the first to come out. Valuations, European equity valuations, are, excuse me, non-U.S. valuations are much more attractive. The S&P 500 is trading at around fifteen and a half and a half times forward the rest of the world is around 11 12 times forward europe is no exception they have strong cyclical exposure so it, when the cycle turns you're going to have a lot of operating torque on the on those kinds of stocks and let me give you an example one of the things i watch is one pair trade BASF and Dow chemical now these are two two large cap commodity chemical companies, one in the U.S., that's Dow Chemical, and one based mainly in Europe, BASF. They've tracked each other. Their stock prices have tracked each other fairly closely for years, for obvious reasons. And when the Russia-Ukraine was started, BASF tanked compared to Dow, and that's because Energy prices went sky-high in Europe, and the and, and BASF feedstock prices went through the roof, and, and they, their cost structure got creamed. But recently, I was surprised to see that the price of BASF stays an upside breakout compared to Dow. I literally fell off my chair. <laughs> that tells me that Europe and European cyclicals are starting to recover. And then the other thing I I watch is the Polish market. If you look at the map, Poland is right next door to Ukraine. And so it's a fairly sensitive barometer of geopolitical risk. And recently, the Polish market is starting to outperform, outperform global equities. That tells me that geopolitical risk is starting to fade. So you've got early signs of a cyclical recovery in Europe and geopolitical risks starting to fade, so Europe is starting looks quite interesting.
1: It's funny because I'm, I'm pulling up the chart as you're speaking. Look at the EPOL, EPOL Poland ETF against the S and P. You're right; it looks like that that relative ratio probably bottomed.
2: Yeah, but also look at uh, poll versus AQUI. That that's even more interesting. Now, moving on to Asia and China. Uh, my inclination is to avoid we get until we got more clarity on what's going on. You've got, first of all, you've got Biden imposing all sorts of export controls on semiconductors. That's go, just going to kill their co- competitiveness for, for years. I don't know how long it's going to take them to recover, you know, maybe five years, maybe 10 years. Who knows? But it's going to hurt them in AI. It's going to hurt them in supercomputers. It's going to, hurt them in the really leading edge of research. Also, this Chinese real estate market is imploding. According to Goldman Sachs, the Chinese real estate market market is actually the biggest asset class in the world. Just think about that. The biggest asset class in the world. And that's because the Chinese actually just funnel money into real estate as a source of savings. I used to think a joke. I call it M4, which is M3 plus real estate in China, as a way of measuring money supply over there. And of course, you've got zero COVID. That's imploding. That's restraining growth over there. There, and so you've got the Chinese economy slowing. You've got all sorts of these sorts of uncertainties, and. The the Asian markets like like Korea, like like Japan, like Taiwan, and Hong Kong, and so on, they do a lot of trade with China. They all export into China. If China slows, all of the Asia-Pacific Rim is in trouble. So until we get more clarity, I'm inclined to avoid Asia. Turning to the U.S., the U.S. looks like it's got more downside risk. After this bear market rally, I know you you talk about a a short term melt up, but let's uh, let me kind of walk through the dynamics. We had third quarter GDP report. The headline was was quite strong. If you strip out the exports, it was up 0.6 final sales. Excuse me, 0.5 final sales, which is okay. Third quarter earnings seasons. It was actually okay. Big tech looks terrible. But the cyclicals aren't bad. If you look at the generals like GE, GE, GM, again, some of the other cyclicals like Caterpillar, that reported today, Honeywell, they're doing okay. They're actually doing uh, The reports are actually quite strong. Now, assuming we get into a recession early next year, which is what my models are telling me, in a typical recession, Forward earnings fall somewhere between 15 and 20%. Also, from a valuation perspective, the last time that the tenure was at these levels, the forward PE was in the 13 to 15 range, where we're about 15 and a half, which is a touch above that range. But if earnings fall 15, 20% and you do the math, you take a twenty percent haircut to earnings. You apply a thirteen to fifteen percent multiple to it. What you get is a peak to trough uh, drawdown of anywhere from thirty to fifty percent on the S and P five hundred, which translates actually to twenty five hundred to about twenty eight fifty on the S and P. Looks like a, you know everybody's getting excited about a diverse pivot on by the Fed. So we're gonna. We'll we'll get a nice rally here. But after that, my my inclination is we've got more downside probably into the fourth quarter and the first quarter next year.
1: Yeah, and I I I mean, that's consistent with some of the other work that I've done, too. The the melt-up term, which people seem to think means new old-time highs. It's not. just means that markets move for reasons that don't seem obvious because fundamentals haven't changed. Is because the signals that I use are basically saying volatility is likely to drop, which is utilities, weakness, lumber to gold strength, even though this week it's been weak on that front. But you know, if you look at what's happening here, which you haven't really seen all year, it, this is being led by small caps. Right. So everyone's looking at the quote unquote market being mega caps, whereas the more volatile, higher beta, more sensitive to the domestic economy, smaller caps are you know, leading the charge. That's what's causing breadth to to increase. So. You you know, I always go back to this point. Path matters more than prediction. I don't myself believe that the ultimate low is in, could be I'm uh, more kind of probably in your camp camp. But I, to me, I, it's very simple, right? I don't think this ends until the housing bear market ends. And that still seems pretty early. So I'm curious from your own research, if you look at housing at all as a factor.
2: I don't look at housing specifically as a factor, but I, looking at an old a lot of the things that surround housing like commodity prices any from copper to lumber we're not there yet having said that what's actually interesting is from the copper gold ratio is stabilizing that tells me that maybe maybe that the downside risk isn't as bad, bad as we think that's all always possible that we get a softish landing that Maybe, maybe earnings don't d- go down 15, 20%. Maybe they go down less. That's always possible.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting, right? Because I think a lot of people seem to, they often talk in terms of absolutes as if there's no possibility of the soft landing. I, I put out that tweet not too long ago saying, What if the Fed gets it right? And it wasn't really very well received because it's not a very popular thing to think through. But nobody knows what tomorrow brings. It's talking about different scenarios and paths, right? So it's not. It may be a low probability, but it's a non-zero probability, right? And that lends itself to a discussion around what you alluded to a little bit earlier, Cam, which is you know, position sizing, because I always go back to diversification. It's ultimately about exposure to multiple un- unknowable scenarios, right, in terms of path behavior. So you want to ideally have things that benefit off of a bull market, a bear market. right? I mean, you can, maybe argue, you can argue it's a little bit like risk parity which also has had a hard time this year. But talk through to the audience how you think about that position sizing point in the context of different probabilities for different outcomes, right? Because this is where I think the nuance of portfolio management gets missed by a lot of people.
2: I think of position sizing in different ways. Position sizing is obviously important for a trader because for a trader, if you're doing swing trading or day trading, Position sizing is important because, the, obviously, for example, Apple is going to report tonight, and you, you want to make sure that your. And if you have an Apple position, you don't want it to be too big, otherwise it, it'll blow up your portfolio. In the short term, that that matters, but I think of portfolio risk in in a different way. Position sizing tells you stock-specific risk, and then you have market risk. Factor risk, so it's not just position sizing an individual stock or an individual position in your portfolio, but whether how correlated those positions in all your other portfolio, the other pieces of your portfolio are correlated to to each other. So, for example, if you hold a whole bunch of mega cap tech names. You've got a huge factor exposure in mega tech, okay? Or if I hold a whole bunch of cyclical names, I've got a big exposure to the cycle, and so on. So that's why how diversification matters. When I was doing all the geek things, we'd have these. Composite scores where we rank stock stocks by, you know, value, value growth, momentum, and so on. And you create a composite score. You throw them in, into a, a risk model, and and they would tell you, okay, let's make your portfolio as close to the benchmark, let's say the S and P five hundred, as possible, while while you create while you have a portfolio that's know very value and uh, very growthy and and, uh, have a strong price momentum and so on you can kind of do that and that's how you build portfolios and that's how you actually it's it's a, a more nuanced way of thinking about position sizing and and portfolio risk but that's often beyond the the capability of small individual investors largely because you you don't have to have access to those kinds of risk models. But you can still think about it in a conceptual fashion of do I want to make sure make sure that my positions are aren't correlated to each other.
1: Right. And the problem this year, of course, is that that's, that correlation has been the dilemma, right, between stocks and bonds.
3: We'll be back after a quick break.
1: Hello listeners, Michael Gayet here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report/leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now... Back to our discussion.
2: Yeah, or I've I've had people tell me, "Well, you know, my portfolio is is well diversified. Well, I've got some Bitcoin, I have got Ethereum, I got you know this coin and that coin and that coin." Well, excuse me, you've got a big bet.
1: No, you know it's funny you say that because I always I, one of the other things I often say about diversification is that diversification means you have to have things in your portfolio that you hate right because the implication there is that if every what are you going to hate you're going to hate the things which are not working right so which is what the very definition of diversification right it should be you have things that are performing things that are not performing to your point it's like people think that if you own bitcoin and then tech stocks that you're diversified just because they're two seemingly different asset classes but they're not from a behavioral perspective
2: no in fact bitcoin is Uh, i found was very, very correlated to the relative performance of ARC to, to the S&P.
1: How do you think about regimes where correlations change for a moment in time, right? So I go back to causation is ultimately what matters the most. Some people will argue that what we saw this year is a paradigm shift in terms of treasuries in particular as the risk-off historical safe haven, that that's going to keep on acting like stocks. And I always get back to the whole reason why the flight to safety trade is a thing to begin with is because there's a connection between volatility in stocks and default risk premiums in the bond market increasing, right? So the higher the VIX is, the more elevated the VIX is. On average, usually high yield widens relative to AAA. So the perception is that heightened volatility in stocks means bankruptcy risks are increasing for companies. So you demand more premium for highly level companies and money goes into safer assets, you know, ultimately to treasuries, because at least in theory, the U.S. government can't default. Obviously not the case this year for a number of reasons with hindsight, but when you think about and you see in the data set those periods where correlations are really out of whack compared to history, does that cause you to want to change things, tweak things, or is it just something that comes with the territory of managing a quant strategy?
2: Well, you know, Mike, I'll answer that in a couple of ways. First, when you you're having a Difficult period performance. That's actually when you, when I find I learn the most about my investment process, and I find out what the holes are, and and try try and fix it. And that's how that's how you learn. And uh, you know when we, when we hire, used to hire people, we like to hire people with scar tissue because that's when you go through these difficult pro- periods. You you acquire scar tissue. That's one way of trying to answer that question. There's there's no there's no good answer how regimes shift other than after the fact and learning. The other way I try to answer that question is if you have a panic, whether it's kind of a, a Lehman crisis, oh no the world's going to end, or you know the COVID crash, or you know the crash of 1987. Usually what happens in those cases is all correlations go to one. And that's because what you have is a rush to some safe haven. It's usually else or or something or or treasuries or T-bills or something. And they sell everything. And when you sell everything, whether it's you find the the most liquid thing and you sell it, the correlations for all those, uh, all those assets go go to one for, for that very reason. Oh, so you right. have to you, you have to understand why the, those correlations are shifting. If it's a panic, yeah, it's one of those panics. Everything goes uh, – correlations go to one. If it's a real regime shift, you have to figure out why it's shifting. And that's, that's how well, we acquire uh, scar
1: tissue. I, I love the scar tissue point. It's like – this, for whatever it's worth, I think is – since February of last year, which is when I've said, I believe, is when the bear market started, that scar tissue started – I'd argue happening to a lot of the newer traders that entered, you know, post COVID, right? Which is actually I'd argue a good thing from a longer term perspective because unless you're humbled, if you're not, if you're not humble when it comes to markets, when you trade, you're going to be humbled. And even when you you've already been humbled, you're going to be humbled again. I mean, that's the nature. That's why actually I like the humble students of the market way that you frame and, and position yourself. Let's go to the audience for a question. Go ahead.
2: Geopolitical risk is one. is tends to be one of those tail risk things. That we don't pay attention to until the, it jumps up and, and hits us in the face. So tail we don't in terms of geopolitical risks they tend to be kale risks and we don't discount them very well. But once it's kind of in our face, I think the the, the discounting mechanism is not bad. All right. I, I'm not going to make a guess on what I'll call the trajectory of political decision. That's not my job, and that's probably way, well beyond my pay grade. When you look at what's going on with gas prices in Europe, people focus on spot price. And as you know, spot price has been dropping like a rock and recently went negative. Because there, there wasn't enough storage, but if you look lo- look at the longer term, let's say a uh, uh, one year forward or two year forward, they've actually been relatively elevated and relatively stable, which tells me that Europe is still going to have challenges.
1: Cam, okay, let's go back. I want to go back to back testing for a bit here. So, sure. When you when you do back testing, it's been my experience that the best strategies and best backtests are often the simplest ones in other words in other words if you 40 50 variables you know this kind of beautiful looking curve type of equation right and when it's done in practice it often fails miserably how do you think about complexity when it comes to an investment strategy and you know a quant backtest
2: when i actually do quant back tests uh, you're right I, i like to do simple simple models you know i'd rather do Something like a PE or EV dive, and something that's like a different discount models that's got you know, five different inputs, because they they can be really sensitive to some of these changes in inputs, and you, you just don't know what's going to happen.
1: Is there any kind of common theme in the various back tests that you've done in your career that is sort of an a thread that's consistent across what makes something? work overtime. So, you know, the, the papers I'm known for, the signals, they're all in some way, shape or form typed interest rates, right? So lumber to gold is about housing, which is about mortgage rates, utilities, most bond-like sector of the stock market, interest rates, treasuries, interest rates, even moving averages. I'd argue are ultimately about interest rates in that usually when you're below a 200-day moving average, you're likely in a recession historically, which means rates fall. Talk through just some of the things that you've observed in terms of different back tests that you've done over the years.
3: We'll be back after a quick break.
2: This is a kind of a favorite theme of mine. You can backtest a model all you like. And even if you make something that, that works, it's going to stop working at some point. You don't know when, but it's going to stop working on you. Because if you found the, mag, you know, some magic bullet, everybody else will have figured out, uh, out the magic bullet eventually and it gets arbitraged away. And, and you don't know when. And that's, that's the challenge of doing quantitative analysis because you build these models, they work for a while and they stop working because everybody else has jumped on board. And that's what I mean about the challenge of investment management because these models stop working.
1: But that's right, because I would argue you need to have those, those periods where it's not working to create doubt for money to no longer believe in how it works so that the anomaly that you're trying to benefit off of comes back, right? There's always a pendulum swing in terms of the idea of, you know, an anomaly that you're trying to take advantage of, people chasing the strategy that's taking advantage of the anomaly, which then arbitrages away the anomaly, then negative returns, poor performance, people then abandon the approach, and then suddenly the anomaly comes back because there's less dollars chasing it.
2: Absolutely. That's what I mean. You know, when I, I said that this at the beginning, when people started doing these simple value strategies like low PE, low PE worked and stopped working. So now we, what we have are value growth cycles, which is exactly what you're explaining. We were talking about values work so for a while. It stops working and growth takes over and all the value guys get killed. And they get fired, and it starts and starts working again.
1: Yeah, you know, because that, that that's almost like the. Um, I'm sure you've seen these kind of studies. They call it, I think, the Morning Star Curse. So, yeah, those, right, those, right. Those funds are those strategies that are ranked, you know, in top five over the last three years, they tend to be the worst on a forward looking basis. And those that performed worst in the last three years, one two star funds, tend to then suddenly be the best because of the abandonment of the strategy. Because now it's ranked as having had poor performance
2: that's right but also you have to think about it this way which is the life cycle and the career risk of people who follow these strategies so let's say you are know, in some strategy large cap growth that that's working for for years and years and years and now there's it started stop working so how long are you going to stay in there you know take the art people for example i don't want to pick on anybody how how long are they going to stick with that strategy at some point everybody abandons everybody abandons them and they they're not going to have any assets so what's what's her career risk and how long can she hold on one year two years five years 10 years and that's how these cycles turn because at some point between Three and ten years, people have abandoned Kathy Wood, and those kinds of innovative growth strategies are going to start working again. I don't know when.
1: No, no, and that, well, that's actually the point you, you said. It's how long will she stick around to it? I mean, it's really how long will the the fickle investors stick around to it, right? Yeah, yeah. That,
2: that, because and, you, and, and you get fired. You get fired.
1: Right, and that goes back to your earlier point, which is the business side can be is very very different than the investing side. Right. So I have a lot of respect actually in a lot of ways for Kathy constantly putting herself out there. Right. So the, it's a constant game from a from an investment business perspective of communication and also belief that the cycle will come your way, a hope, which, you know, people say hope is not a strategy, but when you're managing to prospect this, the hope is what you have for the cycle to come to you.
2: Yeah. But at some point the you know, problem is from a purely business perspective. You, the problem is how long will your investors stick with your, that strategy you know, whether you're a growth investor or a value investor how long will somebody stick with you
3: yeah
1: no that, that's always a challenge let's do one last question everybody here please make sure you follow cam as you can tell very very thoughtful
2: I think he, what you you what you have to think about is what's if you have a model, What's the the source of your competitive advantage in that model? Okay. I mean, for example, Warren Buffett does this thing that, you know, he goes and buys companies that have what he calls competitive moats. And, you know, he goes and buys and owns the company and that's fine. And that's a very long-lived, that's a very long-lived horizon, a source of competitive advantage. So. What's your, what's the competitive advantage of your model? And how quickly can somebody down the street go and build that model? And there's no good answer to that. It, it depends. I'll tell you a story. And this is why I stopped doing a bottom up quant. When I started doing bottom up quant, it was very difficult to do that because there were no database. There were, there weren't many databases around. And when you got, got a data, a database, let's say financial database of, you know, balance sheets and income statements, it would come to you and, okay, you get it. And you get a price database over here and you've got an earnings estimate database over here. And, okay, you've got all this data. How do you marry them together? And that was a real problem you know, back, back in, back in the day, the quants back then had to have A data department of people scrubbing the data and making sure that you could marry all the data together so that the financial data had the right identifiers that would marry to the price database, to the estimate database, to this database and that database. That took a lot of people. Today, you know, you can dial up, you know, you can get Bloomberg, you can get FactSet, you can get all sorts of other services. And I could get, I could start up a bottom up quant process for, I would guess, somewhere between 100,000 to half a million in data costs a year. And I could get it done within a couple of months, hire hire somebody out of school. So I could get, get a quant bottom-up quant system for somewhere between half a million and a million a year. And that's the cost of entry into that business. When I started the cost of entry into that business, that moat was huge. These days, it's pretty cheap for an asset management company, and not for an individual, but for an asset management company. So when you talk about something like money supply, well, how quickly can you dial up that money supply number? So the answer to your question is how how wide is the moat to your to your to your model? And I can't I can't answer your question whether it's you know a day, a month, a year, unless you have to answer how how wide is that moat and what's the source of your competitive advantage? You have to think about. The asset management business, just like how you manage, analyze a, a company that you invest in. you know What's the source of competitive advantage and how sustainable are the the margins that they're, they're getting?
1: 100%. All right, everybody here, because i got to wrap up. Please make sure you follow Cam, who's phenomenal in the way that he communicates things and very knowledgeable, obviously. Appreciate those that keep coming back. Cam, really do appreciate you spending your time here with us. And everybody enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Cam.
3: Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code podcast30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.